0: Well, welcome, guys. If you're here at Cornerstone for the first time, my name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad to have you guys with us. We're going to be continuing our series in the book of Ruth this morning. And in many ways, I mean, actually, thank you so much for sharing because so much of what she talked about, about putting weight on ourselves for things that maybe God even hasn't asked us to be responsible for and then wondering why he's not coming through on what we've signed him up for is so much what we saw in the first couple weeks in the book of Ruth. And that's what we're going to see again this morning as we get into Ruth chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up there. But what I want to remind you of is in addition to learning about what it looks like to trust God with what we can't see, with what we can't control in our lives, there's also something that we wanted to use, uh, spend time in this book to address. And that's what, is it, what does it look like what is God's heart for the marginalized? Those who've been thrust to the edges of society, whether that's through um, their economic situation, because they're an ethnic outsider, through disabilities, because they're divorced or widowed or what have you. What is God's heart for the marginalized? Is kind of one of the big picture themes of this book and of our series. And especially we see that as we get into Ruth chapter 2. There's a lot of interplay Um, on those on those issues and the question is not just what's God's heart but also then what does it look like for us to follow God's heart what how does our faith lead us to deal with marginalization marginalization both for those of us who are on the margins of society and for those of us who find ourselves in positions to offer kindness and grace to those on the margins and I use the word us very purposefully in both of those statements. Because the whole issue of marginalization is about the separations that exist between different groups and types of people in our broken world. And it's all about distinguishing between us and them. But the amazing truth that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2 is that what Jesus came to do through His death and resurrection was not just make us right with God, but to tear down the dividing wall of hostility between people and create a new humanity in himself, a new us. So whether you feel that you are on the margin, or you're one who's more in the mainstream, if you will, if you are a follower of Jesus, here's what you need to know. You have a seat at the most important table there is. You have an unshakable inheritance as a child of God. And because of that, because Jesus is the one who brings this family together, then we, as followers of Jesus, as the family of God, can and need to go to great lengths to deal with any divisions or separations or marginalization that may take place within this church so that we can be a united body together, so that we can even invite others into this body with us. And I think this becomes especially important when we look around at what's going on in our society today. Man. Our broken, fractured, separated society needs nothing more than to see the grace of God at work in His people to bring unity and reconciliation. I mean, can you imagine... What it would look like if the church of Jesus Christ actually lived out the reconciliation that the Holy Spirit, God himself, is in us to empower us to do. That would look like such good news in our world. That's why we have so much to learn from the book of Ruth. This is such an amazing story about inclusion and redemption and about those who are on the outside being brought near through God's grace being administered through God's people. Last week I thought Todd did such a great job walking us through uh, the difference between common sense and faith in the book of Ruth. I'm going to put this one up here because hopefully that, that rings a bell for you. If you guys weren't here, I would definitely recommend you go back and listen to Todd's message. It really, I, I really needed to hear what, what was shared last week. Basically, he talked about how as we look at Ruth chapter 1, we can see how Naomi and her husband Elimelech, before he died, were very much operating based upon common sense, the best practices that people would undertake at that time. And yet what came from it was just emptiness and barrenness and death. Common sense, as you see from the questions that are up there, basically boils down to self-interest. Because that's what's hardwired in all of us. As selfish, broken people, we start with, what do I want? What would sounds best to me? And then we sprinkle a little God in there and go, okay, God, could you help me with that? And what Todd talked about last week was how living that way inevitably leads to bitterness. Because no matter how much you want to put God on the hook for the promises you've made for Him, God has not pledged Himself to be faithful to your promises. He's pledged Himself to be faithful to His. Right? Faith asks different questions. Faith instead asks, not who am I and what do I want out of life, but first, who is God? Who am I? What are you doing in this world, God? And how are you asking me to trust you? Todd asked us last week this question. Do we really want to live by faith? Do we really want to move beyond our natural, self-interested common sense and place ourself and our well being and the well being of those around us fully in God's hands. Well, I would say we should only do that if God's faithful, right? We should only completely trust God if He is completely trustworthy. That's the dilemma that Naomi's in. I don't know if He's trustworthy. He's dealt bitterly with me. He's been harsh with me. If last week Naomi was an example of the bitterness that comes from disappointed common sense, then what we'll see as we move into Ruth 2 this morning is we'll see in both Ruth and a man that we're going to meet named Boaz, the example on the other side of the healing and restoration that can come from faith in God's faithfulness. As we look at Ruth here, we're going to kind of do three things. We're going to first look at the example of Ruth, see her as an example of faith in the midst of marginalization. Then we're going to look at Boaz's example of faith extending itself in grace to the marginalized. And then at the end of the chapter, we'll see how the faithful actions of both Ruth and Boaz begin to soften and change bitter, hard Naomi's heart. It's amazing. I hope you really uh, enjoy our time together, because I've had so much fun studying this passage this week. But as we get into this chapter, there's one really important word I want to unpack for you. It comes up three times in the book of Ruth. I put the three verses up here. You see, may the Lord deal kindly with you, Naomi says to Orpah and Ruth in chapter one. Then Naomi again talks about how Boaz should be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. And then what Boaz says to Ruth in chapter 3 about the last kindness being greater than the first. In each one of those verses you see, I highlighted that word kindness. That is a very important word. I would say that's kind of the theme word for the book of Ruth. Some English translations use the word kindness. Other words use the word loyalty. And they both kind of get something of the meaning of it. But I would say that this word, it's it's the, the Hebrew word chesed. Can you say that? Chesed. Ah, it's a fun word. uh, I don't often do that, and I don't mean to sound pretentious by that, but this is such a great word because the word chesed is all about covenant. It's all about God's promises that form the basis of his relationship with his people. I like to translate this word as covenant faithfulness. Sinclair Ferguson has a fantastic definition of it when he says this. He says, When God revealed himself to Moses, He said that he was a God full of chesed, not simply love or kindness in an ordinary sense. It means God's deep goodness expressed in his covenant commitment, his absolute loyalty, his obligating of himself to bring to fruition the blessings that he has promised, whatever it may cost him personally to do that. This covenanted commitment is a central theme of the Old Testament, and forms the melody line of the book of Ruth. You see, if common sense makes plans and invites God into them, faith, on the other hand, says, God, what have you planned? What have you already committed yourself to? And how do I come under that? We don't know how much of an understanding of God and his covenant Ruth had, but what we see in her statement of faith in Ruth one sixteen is amazingly clear covenant language when she says to naomi that your people shall be my people and your god my god she is almost word for word repeating god's words to israel back at the beginning of exodus you will be my people and i will be your god in this one simple phrase of ruth there's so much there She's not dictating the terms that she's going to follow in her relationship with God. She comes under the terms that God had already made with Israel. She says, "He's going to be my God. I'm going to submit to that covenant. I'm going to be part of that community." And we see this even more powerfully through what she does next. Look at Ruth chapter 2, verse 2. It says, "Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi said to her, Go, my daughter. She starts out with gleaning. Now, gleaning was something that God had, com- had told his people to do in the covenant. Two different places we see this. Leviticus 19. God said this to his people. He said, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, Neither shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. He comes back and says through Moses in Deuteronomy, he says, when you, again, when you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, a gathered bunch of grain, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord may God may bless you in all the work of your hands. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. Ruth says, okay, I'm coming under God and His covenant, and I'm joining with His people. Well, what does God's covenant say regarding me? Well, leave the margins of the field and what's left over for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. Yeah, that's me. I'm going to start there. So she sets out to glean in accordance with God's covenant. Now, this is amazing. Her faith in God's covenant is remarkable given that this is the period of the judges when everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. She has no guarantee as she heads out from whatever home they had as she goes from field to field that she'll find someone who has any interest in doing what God's Word says. But she says, God's my God, his people are my people, so this is where I'm going to start. And look what happens, this is remarkable, look at verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. He was an extended family relative of her late father-in-law. And I love how it says it, she just happened to end up in his field. And look what happens in verse 4. Behold, Boaz just happens to come from Bethlehem to the field shortly thereafter. The author, almost tongue-in-cheek, talks about how all this stuff just happened. But his point is obvious. These things didn't just happen. God, our sovereign, gracious, faithful God, has been orchestrating events to lead up to this point where these two people should meet. As a matter of fact, not in any way that it lessens what Naomi and Ruth have lost, but everything they've gone through over the last 10 plus years has been leading up to this moment where God's grace is going to be put on display in such a beautiful way in their lives. Before we get to Boaz and how he fits into the story, I want to to talk about one more aspect of Ruth's character in this. We see it in the very next verse. Look what happens. Boaz asks who this woman is. His foreman says, this is that Moabite woman who came from Moab with Naomi. And look what he says about her in verse 7. She asked permission. She said, please let me glean. She didn't come on and say, this is my right according to the law. Give me what's mine. She asked for permission. She sought favor, so I let her glean. And not only that, she came, and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. She got after it. She worked hard. She didn't expect it to come to her. She worked hard for it. This is one of the most remarkable things about God's provision of gleaning for the poor and the sojourner and the widow. He didn't tell the Israelites to open a soup kitchen. He didn't tell them to bake bread and give people a handout. He told them to give them work. Work. Come, glean in the field, gather what's left behind, thresh it, take that grain, grind it, make flour, make dough, and there you go. Oftentimes, though, I feel like what we do is we say, hey, you know what? I'll gather it for you, and you know, you know I'll, I'll thresh it for you. I'll, I'll grind it, and I'll make the dough, and I'll bake it, and I'll give it to you. And those in need say, okay, great, now what do I do? Well, come back next week. Now, some of you guys hear me say this, and I know the first thing that steps in—that you kind of fold your arms and you go, well, that's right. People got to work for it. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's what I did, or maybe that's what my grandpa did, or whatever it is. And that's not what this is talking about. Listen to me, please, here. God never calls his people to the kind of idolatrous self-sufficiency that's so often praised in this country. But He also never calls His people to the kind of dehumanizing, disincentivizing, crippling, handout type of charity that is also so often praised in this country. God has the audacity to claim that everything belongs to Him. The field and the food. He is the owner and the giver. So in some ways, it doesn't matter... Whether you own the field or you glean in the field, it's all him, his and it all comes from his hand. Both the food and the work to produce it. In this way, it's very similar to what God did in the Garden of Eden. Look at Genesis chapter 2. It says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Whose garden was it? God's. Was Adam free to eat from all the fruit except that one tree? Yes. But he was also to work it and to keep it. As we think about how to show grace and God's love to the marginalized, let us hold this truth. Work is good. It is not a result of sin. Now, our sin and the brokenness of, world, of this world affects both our work and the way we work. But we have to remember that work is part of God's good creation. It's dignifying. When we seek to come alongside those of us who are in need with not just a handout but with work, we show them dignity as God's image bearers. I think that's what God would have us do. Work is dignifying. As a matter of fact, Paul will go so far as to say in First Thessalonians three, maybe it's second, I think it's Second Thessalonians three. Double check it. If he says, if someone's not willing to work, let him not eat. He says, if someone is in need and not willing to contribute, then don't give them the handout. Now, stop and think about this for a second. Because oftentimes, common sense says, why work when I can make more per hour sitting at the light outside a target with a cardboard sign? But faith, on the other hand, says it's not ultimately about how much I make per hour. It's not about how much I make, but what I was made for. Now, along with that, I mean, the reality is we need to pay livable wages. People should not have to work five different jobs just to make ends meet. I think that's sometimes more a sign of the way that our collective greed as a society contributes to systemic injustice. we especially in a place that's so astronomically expensive like Southern California. But, I mean, that's a, that's a whole other topic for another day. But let me just say... Maybe it suffices to say for now this. We were made by God to work, and therefore, even in the way that we seek to serve others, let's treat each other with that dignity. Now, for those who are physically or mentally handicapped, that work is going to need to look different. But if we truly want to serve those who are physically or mentally handicapped in our society, and to show them that dignity as image bearers of God, then it's not just about what we want to do for them, but the ways in which we can seek to find appropriate good work for them to do. Ruth saw the goodness in the work of gleaning, and so she went after it. By the end of this chapter, we're going to see, after one day's gleaning, she comes home with over 30 pounds of threshed barley. I bet she slept great that night. So let me just do this. Before we move on to look at Boaz, check this out. To those who are on the margins, how does faith cause us to live? Well, first, we trust in God's faithfulness. Not what we want God to do for us, but what he has promised to do. Which means we need to start by saying, what, God ha- what has God promised to those who are followers of Jesus? And then how do we actively trust that? Now, we don't have time to look at all of these, but I just made a short list for those of you guys that take notes of just some of these promises, especially in regards to finding what we need in life that we see in the New Testament. Some are the words of Jesus. Others are the words of Paul. Um, take some time. Go back through, especially if you're someone who's looking, I don't know how I'm going to make it. And you look at it and go, maybe I've functioned more like Naomi in the past. Start here. What has God promised? Secondly, it's this. Trust in God's faithfulness and then pray specifically for what you need. I've gotten to be a part of several people's lives where they've been in a really tight spot and I've kind of just said, because based upon advice I'd heard from others, make a very specific prayer list. What is it that you feel like you need? And then pray through that regularly because it does two things. It makes it so that when God answers you recognize it as him answering, and it's not just, oh, it just happened. You see his hand in it. And second, the other thing, you also begin to see as God begins to mold and, sh- and change your desires. You know, maybe I, this is what I thought I really needed, but now God's shown me what I, he's actually providing us something different. And either way, you get to praise him for it. The third thing is this. Expect God to meet your needs through his people. Expect God's grace to have a human face, as one commentator said of it in this passage. And then second, and fourth thing, seek the needs of others, not just your own. I think that's what's so impressive about Ruth. The thing that drove her to work so hard gleaning in the field wasn't just to fill her belly. She was seeking to serve Naomi, who was either too hard and bitter or too old and frail to be out there reaping with her. What drove her was not just her own self-interest, but her desire to serve others. Now, let's turn our attention to Boaz. He's on the totally opposite end of the social spectrum from Ruth. If she's a Moabite woman widow, three strikes against her about as vulnerable as you could be, he, on the other hand, in in chapter 2, verse 1, is identified as a worthy man. An honorable man, a man of standing and reputation. And I would say this he is a man of status and means within that society. But here's the thing that's remarkable about him. Whereas we would probably expect someone in that position to be a little bit upper crusty, a little bit entitled, a little bit indifferent to those who are lower than them on the social ladder. His heart is so soft to the Lord and to others. The very first words that he says are in chapter uh, 2, verse 4. He comes from Bethlehem and he comes up to the reapers who are his male and female servants. So again, he's, he's a man of means in that he has teams of people to harvest his crops for him. And the very first thing that he says to them is, the Lord be with you. And they respond to him, the Lord bless you think about this this is the employer business owner of our day showing up to check in on the workforce and the first words out of his mouth are the lord be with you it's not hey is everybody pulling their weight is anybody standing holding up a shovel his first concern is not am i getting a full day's work out of these guys not because hard work is unimportant But first and foremost, he's not approaching this situation with what he stands to get from them. He wants something for his workers. More than what I get out of your work, what I want for you is to know and experience God's presence in your life. Those of you in here who are business owners or bosses who have people who work under you, Is this what you want for those who work under you? It takes faith to move beyond the self-interest of making sure that people work hard so that you benefit from it, or so that you look good to the people who are above you, and instead to say, what I want I want to recognize that you are an image bearer of God made by Him for good work in His world and I want you in and through the work that you do to know His presence in your life. For some of you, as you prepare to go back to the office, to the workplace tomorrow morning, look at this verse, pray that God would develop this kind of heart in you. He pretty quickly recognizes this woman Ruth there. He asks who she is, and as we saw before, the foreman identifies her and talks about her work ethic. And so in verse 8, he pulls Ruth aside, and he says this. Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Boaz goes so far beyond the strict letter of the law. He was told by God in the law to allow the sojourner and the widow and the fatherless to come and glean and gather what's on the margins of the field. But he sees Ruth and he says, okay, don't just glean here. Stay here. Throughout the rest of the harvest season, stay in my fields with my people. He allows her to. He tells her to stay close to the young woman. The young woman most likely, the, 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 the men would come through and, and would uh, have the reapers and they would cut down the grain. And then the women come and they would bind up the sheaves together. And typically what would happen is that once the crews basically were off the scene, then the gleaners were allowed to come in. But you see what Boaz says? Be right in there amongst my young women as they're binding up the grain. You don't have to wait till they clear the scene. Stay close to them. He says, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. He charges the young men not to touch her. I don't think it's necessarily talking about that they would somehow like molest her or sexually abuse her. But more that because she was a foreigner, they would chase her off. I've charged the young men. I've told them, you're allowed to be here. You're allowed to be closer than gleaners usually can be. He gives her access to the water supply. But it doesn't even stop there. Look what happens later on in verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. He invites her to the table. Table fellowship in the ancient Near East was huge. I mean, it still is in the Middle East today. This, in many ways, may have been the most shocking thing that Boaz does in the entire chapter. He invites her to the table to share a meal with him and probably his closest servants. She was probably taken aback by this, let alone the servants that are sitting at the table going, she gets to be here too? Not only that, after she leaves the table with leftovers of the cooked food to bring home to Naomi, Boaz gives further instruction to the men. He says this, let her glean even among the sheaves, the gathered bunches of grain, and do not reproach her. Even more than that, pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Boaz goes so far beyond the letter of the law that for us living in a very um, sexualized, romanticized culture, we can so quickly look at this and go, he must have had the hots for her. <laughs> he must have seen that she was this cute little foreign beauty and like, hey, how do I get her attention and wow her off her feet? Now, I would say there is romance in this story, but not yet. And even when it's come and it comes, it's not the type that we're used to. There's something so much better on display here. Not physical attraction, but chesed. Covenant faithfulness on display in real life. This is compassion shown to a foreign widow by an honorable man who goes beyond the letter of the law to its true intent to the heart of it. Because he is a man who understood God's faithfulness in his life and so therefore sought sought to share and reflect that faithfulness to others. Look at the way Ruth reacts in verse 10. She falls on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? She almost has to remind him, don't you remember? I'm a foreigner. Why are you treating me like this? One commentator, Dean Ulrich, I love the way he he pointed out something that I didn't even catch the first couple times I read this. Look what he says. He says, Whereas Ruth called herself a foreigner in verse 10 and says later in verse 13 that she's not even on the same level as Boaz's servant girls, Boaz used the terms young woman in verse 5 and my daughter in verse 8. Rather than emphasizing the social distance between them and so belittling her, He affirmed her personhood and elevated her standing in the group. It's fantastic. This is covenant faithfulness. Boaz looks at her and he goes, you're not just a foreigner. You're a member of my family. You're part of my clan. And so therefore, the loyalty that you've shown to Naomi is by extension loyalty that you've shown to me. Look what he says. Boaz answered, All that you have done for your mother in law since the death of your husband has been made fully known to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You're not just a foreign widow. You're a member of my clan, so the loyalty you showed Naomi is the loyalty you've shown to me. You're not just a foreign widow because you left behind that old identity. You left your father and mother and your people. And you have taken refuge under Yahweh's wings. You are part of the covenant with us. The old covenant always left the door open for Gentiles to be joined to Israel. Provided that they left behind their prior identities and idols and actually came under God's covenant and especially committed themselves to the God of the covenant. And that's what Boaz sees in Ruth. He sees the faith in God that's motivating her actions and so he says, may God repay you and give you a full reward. Now those words might make us trip up a little bit because it almost sounds like because of what Ruth did, God owes her something. Doesn't it? Repay you. But here's where I would love to remind you of what we talked about at the end of the Hebrew series. We talked about the relationships between patrons and clients and the reciprocation of grace that flowed back and forth between both parties. That's what's on display here. This is talking about the the way that grace flows back and forth between God and His people in the covenant, in faithfulness to the covenant. And he's saying, as you have committed yourself to God, He is committed to you. Not only that, the word for repay and reward there, that are up there, they both have the same Hebrew root. You know what it is? Shalom. Peace. Wholeness. Fullness. What Boaz is saying here is may God bring wholeness and fullness and completeness to you because you've put your trust in him. With all the goodness that Boaz is showing her, he doesn't even make reference to it. He just says, God will be gracious to you. God will repay you and he will reward you. He recognizes that it's not even primarily about what he gives to Ruth, but what God is doing through him to be gracious to Ruth. He's the instrument. God is the source. So in the same way we did with Ruth, let's draw out some principles that we can apply to those of us who have standing and means within our society. The place to start is the same as it is for those on the margins. Put your trust in God's covenant faithfulness, not your means, not your reputation. He has given you everything that you have And if you recognize him as the source and the guarantor of it, you can risk to be gracious to others. Boaz Boaz risked a lot to be this effusively gracious to Ruth. And wait till next week. He gets in some risky business in chapter 3 in order to seek to be gracious to Ruth. And again, it wasn't just Physical attraction that led him to do this. It was his deep confidence in God's faithfulness in his life that allowed him to bend over backward to be faithful to Ruth and Naomi. In the same way, let me ask you that, let me say this to you. If your confidence is in God and in your unshakable identity as his child, you can risk to show grace and favor to others. For those of you that are married, I know sometimes this is something that goes on in married couples. I'm being married myself. I know this. Um, There are times when maybe one spouse feels more strongly about giving than another to a certain cause or a certain person. And usually it comes down to what we're comfortable with. What would it look like to go, okay, before we talk about whatever dollar figure or whatever we're comfortable with, we say, okay, let's make sure that our confidence is in God. We recognize Him as the source of all of this. And so now how can we actually be stretched by faith in this circumstance? Trust in God's faithfulness. Second, seek to dignify people. To honor them as image bearers of God created for for good work, not just handouts. Show them dignity. Think about this. Boaz, with everything that he provided for Ruth, she still gathered the barley. She still threshed it she still carried that 30-plus pound bag home. That may not seem very chivalrous to us, but Boaz was acknowledging her dignity as an image-bearer of God created for good work. Dignify people. Number three, offer a relationship, not just stuff. We talked about this in the Hebrew series as well. It's never just about a transaction. And that's what comes so easy when, it's, when we just hand something out and move on. It becomes more about how we feel about it than any sort of ongoing relationship. But what does Boaz do? He says, not only, okay, you can glean today, but stick with my servant girls. Stay here for the rest of the harvest. On an ongoing way, I'm committing myself to your protection and provision. It was a relationship, not just stuff, and ultimately not just a relationship with us, but a relationship with God, which is why number four, Point people to God, not just you. So that way, He gets the glory uh, out of it, and we recognize that we are the instruments of His grace, not the source of it. And this also protects us from the kind of toxic codependency that hijacks so much common sense charity work that happens in our world. This is what we begin to learn from this chapter. Look at the way Ruth responds to all this goodness in verse 13. She says, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, even though I'm not one of your servants. But I want to pause here for just a second because there's a principle here that we need to notice. Why does Boaz say that he's doing all this for Ruth? for two reasons because of her faithfulness to Naomi and because of her faith in God because Boaz was a faithful man of God I think that he would have welcomed any foreigner or widow or sojourner onto his field to glean but it was the faith and loyalty of Ruth that caused him to go even farther and bend over backward to be gracious to her he showed her covenant faithfulness because he recognized that she was a member of the covenant community. There's a principle there that we need to recognize that I think is very clearly communicated by Paul in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. When Paul says this, he says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. See what he says? Do good to everyone. But there's an especially commitment to those who are of the household of the faith, of those who are of the covenant of faith with us. It's not necessarily about choosing one over the other. It's about doing both well. We should seek to meet needs outside of the church so that we have opportunities to show the love of Jesus and welcome people into this family. But if we keep our focus primarily on needs outside of the church. If we talk about needs that we're meeting outside of the church, if we're not careful, it can give the impression that people inside the church should have their act together. Because the needy people are out there, not in here. It can make it so that people within the church can feel shy or embarrassed or out of place to make their needs known. And if that's the case with you, I would say this. If you have taken refuge in Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you are part of the especially that Paul talks about here in Galatians 10. Please make your needs known so that we can demonstrate covenant faithfulness to each other so that The world—remember what Jesus prayed in John 17 when he says, may they be perfectly one so that the world will know that you sent me? The way that we care for one another as a body of Christ has massive evangelistic implications for our community. If we are able to especially care for one another and meet each other's needs, we won't be able to keep that kind of love to ourselves. It will spill out into the lives of those around us. That's what we see in the book of Acts, chapter 2 and chapter 4, as it says that there was not a needy person in the church because the believers who had means would sell it to share with those who had needs. And through that, God was daily adding people to their number, not just because people wanted to get on the payroll, but because they saw chesed, they saw covenant faithfulness on display, and it turned their hearts. That's what we see in Naomi here at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 17. This is amazing. Ruth gleans till evening, then she goes out and she beats it out, and she comes home with an ephah of barley, which is about 30 pounds. She took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her the food that was left over, and her mother, who that morning said, yeah, sure, go glean. I don't know what's going to come from it. Now goes, where were you today? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So Ruth says, she says, Okay, it was the man whose field and whom I worked was Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness, chesed, whose covenant faithfulness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. We're going to talk a lot more about that Redeemer idea next week. But for now, look what she says right above that. She says, may he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord. The last time that Naomi mentions the Lord's name is at the end of chapter 1 when she tells the women in Bethlehem not to call her Naomi, but Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. He has brought calamity upon me. But now what does she say of the Lord? She says his covenant faithfulness has not forsaken the dead or the living. Naomi's heart is changing. It's thawing. The cold, hardened, bitter, broken woman from chapter one is gone, or at the very least is fading away. Why? Because of God's chesed, his covenant faithfulness displayed through Ruth and Boaz. It's incredible. One guy said it like this. He says, God's grace had a human face. God had used faithful Boaz and Ruth to restore faithless Naomi to faith. Hope is beginning to reawaken in her heart. God hasn't forsaken her. Maybe there's hope for her and Ruth. And not only that, maybe there's hope that the name of her dead husband will not be forever cut off from Israel. That's where the whole weight of the story is leaning as we get into chapter three next week. But we've talked this morning about what faith looks like in the midst sorry, I'll keep going in the midst of marginalization. We talked also about what faith looks like if you're one in the position to serve and bless those on the margins. But here's how I want to close. I'm going to invite the band back up. We're going to sing one more song called All the Poor and Powerless, which I think fits very well into Naomi's situation here at the end of the chapter. But if you're here this morning and you have a hard time relating to either Ruth or Boaz's example, because the reality is that you're probably more in the situation of Naomi, You're so hurt, exhausted, tired of getting your hopes up that you don't want to get them up anymore. You know you've lived your life way more by common sense and invited God into your plans than the faith that seeks His will. And you know that's produced that bitterness and disappointment. Maybe you're not even all the way there yet, but you know you're on the way. Maybe there's certain situations, maybe not all of life, but certain situations in life where you've gone, forget it. I don't even want to try anymore. You're not alone. We all get weary. We all lose hope at times. But God is faithful. And my prayer for you this week is that God would surround you. If you're in that broken, hardened place like Naomi, my prayer for you is that God would surround you with people like Ruth and Boaz. With people who maybe are in just as hard of a situation as you, but they haven't lost heart. And they can demonstrate God's faithfulness in the midst of adversity. And even people like a Boaz who are in the position to meet your needs. And when God provides that for you, I pray that you have eyes to see it. And you don't just go, well, just happened. Or even worse, well, it's about time God showed up. But instead, as you see God's covenant faithfulness on display through God's people, I pray that you would bless his name that you would remember his faithfulness and give him the glory, amen?